0: We are going to be exploring the world of running, and uh, I must say right at the outset, I am not a runner, and I have to say I've also been kind of bewildered by the whole notion of of people being coached to run. Isn't running just the simplest of, of endeavors, uh, albeit maybe something that we're not all good at, but what could be more basic than running? In fact, running is a bit of a mystery, and especially when one runs long distances at an elite level. And... Uh, I have learned so much from a fascinating new book called Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. The guru mentioned in the book's subtitle is one Bob Larson, who became really a legendary coach in track and field, and especially made his name for for himself back in the early 1970s by working with a, a really intriguing A band of kind of ragtag distance runners who became a real powerhouse in the sport. And uh, this was at a time when running was not the commonplace hobby that it is nowadays. And uh, so Bob Larson really broke new ground and then, in a sense, returned to some of that work uh, very late in his career and uh, with, with tremendous success once again. And this story is told so thoroughly. Uh, In a meticulously prepared book uh, written by Matthew Futterman, who is deputy sports editor for the New York Times, a previous writer for the Wall Street Journal, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and... uh He is actually part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Breaking News back in 2005, and a bit of a runner himself, and uh, responsible for this really marvelous book. Again, it's titled Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed, published by Doubleday. Matthew Futterman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Right off the bat... Explain to our listeners your own status as a runner and the place that running has had in your life
1: well i mean from a pure sort of numbers perspective i'm am definitely a, a devoted sort of addicted long distance runner I've run twenty I just ran my twenty third marathon, so I think there's some people who would say I've got a little bit of a problem there <laughs> um, but uh, i I've, I've really been running uh, I, almost as long as I can remember. I don't really remember myself before I was a runner. Uh, I think I started, you know, when I was about ten years old. I ran a five-mile race, and that was sort of the birth of it. But I, I can remember being, you know, roughly that age and being so admiring of uh, the people who were running uh, the New York Marathon, which was really in its infancy back then in the late '70s. And uh, I always wanted to do that, and so I guess. I was kind of a runner before I was even running all that much. Hmm. And I ran cross-country in high school, and, uh, you know, I was never very never very good. It wasn't all that fast. Um, but I loved the activity, and uh, I've sort of been running, on, you know, nearly every every day since uh, I was a teenager, so, you know, roughly 35 years or so. Hmm.
0: One of the really intriguing things about the book, which is mostly about this... Legendary coach Bob Larson and some of his best runners with which he worked over the years. But interspersed in the book are these short chapters that are really your own story as a runner. And I really like that. I think it's a a very, very nice addition to the book. And I want to ask you specifically about something you write Uh, from one of these short little chapters, uh, which is headlined Fayetteville, Arkansas, 1992. You write, When I first move here from New York to a land that feels far more foreign than the handful of foreign countries I have been to, I run because it's the only time during the day when I feel like myself. Every other waking minute, I am an alien in what is for me a very strange land. Can you just say a quick word about uh, how at least at at this point in your life, and probably other points in your life, running served this sort of purpose for you?
1: Uh, Well, I can say that back in 1991 when I moved to Arkansas, the world was a lot bigger place back then. Uh, The Internet didn't exist for regular folks, and uh, there wasn't email. You were really out of contact um, with uh, I grew up in New York, and so I was very much sort of a coastal person um It was very sort of out of contact with uh you know what I would say is like urbanity and um you know if you wanted a copy of the New York Times, you had to line up at the library at about two thirty in the afternoon uh, on Sundays, about fifty copies would get flown in uh, to a local drugstore and so it was it was a far away place uh back then and um you know, and I used to, at that point, now I'm a morning runner, but at that point I was sort of an afternoon runner, uh, kind of late afternoon. And I would sort of go through my day, and people didn't talk like I did. They didn't sound like I did. Uh, they they ate different foods than I did. I didn't know what pork rinds were. I didn't know what chicken fried steak was. And uh, and then I would sort of, you know, go for my run, and I would start to feel comfortable with myself again. And, you know, there was there a there was a... That was a great year in my life, Um, in part because I did one of the things that is sort of actually the tenet of uh, the Bob Larson training regimen, which is to make yourself comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, And that's really sort of where the title comes from, is sort of pushing yourself to the edge. That's why I call the book Running to the Edge, because I think it's so important both in running and in life to push yourself and challenge yourself and do the things that you're fr- afraid of, uh, whether it's running really fast for 5 or 6 or 8 or 11 miles or um, moving to a strange place where you don't know anybody for a while and seeing how that feels. Mm. So um, that's sort of where running fits in both as a exercise activity and a kind of uh, approach to life for me. Mm.
0: When we uh, see the title of your book and we see the word guru and we understand that this is a story that, at least at the outset, unfolds in California in the early 1970s, we we maybe jump to some conclusions about where that guru, namely track legend Bob Larson, came from. In fact, he was a Minnesota farm boy, <laughs> and I wonder if you could just say a word about, in a sense, that disconnect. Between where his life started, the very ordinary beginning of his life, and, and where he ultimately ended up,
1: well, he started out uh, right. He said, i in a farm in northern Minnesota, no plumbing, no electricity." And uh, you know, as he talked about it to me, he told me what his life was like. You know, it was an incredible, you know, how just how hard the work was that he they had to do every day. Uh, whether it was plowing fields with a team of horses or milking cows or, you know, just even canning vegetables so they could make it through the winter uh, or storing meat in a freezer uh, several miles south of them uh, because they didn't have have a freezer on their own farm. So they had to store, uh, raise cattle and store whatever meat they had uh, down there. And so when they wanted to eat, Meat, they'd have to go get their supply of meat, uh, for the week. So, it, it was, he was there for the first 11 years of his life, uh, until his father fell out of the haymill and, um, and, and, and really had a pretty serious injury to his back serious enough that he wasn't going to be a farm worker and he wasn't going to be able to run a farm anymore and they moved to san diego and that's really where bob discovered competitive running he'd been running on the farm sort of as a means of transportation a way to get from point a to point b uh... friends were a couple miles away school was a couple miles away and he would often find himself running there and so that was his life, and it morphed when he moved to the city. He had all this strength, and he knew how to work hard, and he also happened to be born pretty darn fast. And uh, that was where actually he felt comfortable, too. He felt most comfortable, too, because he was sort of you know, a fish out of water moving from northern Minnesota to Uh, what what felt like a big city to him. And, you know, like you mentioned before, when I moved to Arkansas, sort of feeling comfortable with himself at those moments when he was running, that was almost when he felt sort of as like the best version
0: of himself. Right. And uh, he finds himself prompted to ask the question, why do we run? And what, what should our state of being be? when we're running <laughs> and, and of course it's it's it, it's it's an intriguing question and i suppose the answer is a little bit different for every single person and this is part of the key of of how he was able to uh work with with uh talented runners uh, at such a high level explain kind of the state of of running uh in the early 1970s compared to to, to what it is now uh, and to, to what extent anybody ran recreationally outside of their own high school track team, for instance?
1: Well, it was a very niche activity, uh, and niche is probably an overstatement for what it it was. You just would not see people running recreationally back then. There was basically, you know, there was only one marathon that anyone knew about, which was the Boston Marathon, and New York had started in, in 1970, but it didn't, you know, it didn't really catch on until it became a five borough race in nineteen seventy six. And, you know, there was there was nothing more rebellious that you could do than sort of I mean there were more things that you could do to be rebellious, but in terms of like a a, a recreational activity you know going for a 20 mile run on a saturday morning in the early 1970s was a bit like you know going to climb everest or something like that you know people really thought those pe- those people were really sort of on the edges of society and you know i will say that that even though this has become a very mainstream activity, you know, you go out in any park any morning, you're going to see a lot of people running. Uh, It's just sort of a part of so many people's lives and their routine. I still think there is a spirit of rebellion at the roots of it, uh, especially as you climb higher in the distances. I know a great appeal of the activity for me is the idea that I feel like I'm doing something that's, you know, a little bit crazy, and that other people think is a little bit crazy, and that's okay. Um, that's that, that's sort of a, a, a real kind of release for me. And you know, when I, when I was approaching writing a book, I long I long wanted to write a book about running, but I was looking for the right story that could get at those emotions and that spirit. And I think I found them in, uh, you know, as we as we put in the subtitle, the team of misfits known as the Hummel Toads, who were Bob Larson's lab rats in uh, in the 60s and 70s, and when he was learning about, you know, how to make people run very far, very fast. Hmm.
0: We're speaking with Matthew Futterman about his book Running on the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. So explain the way in which these young athletes that you call a band of misfits, were a band of of misfits. Uh, I mean, in a sense, what an unlikely group they were uh, to score some of the great successes that they ultimately did.
1: Well, if you talk about a guy named named Ed Mendoza, uh, you know, Ed is a Mexican-American, comes from a Mexican immigrant family, and, you know, he's living in San Diego, and He's tiny. He's like he's he, he, even when as an adult he was he only grew to be about five five, uh, but he as a child was tiny and he thought he was basically his body was basically worthless. Uh, he didn't really know and he didn't know anything. You know what competitive track and field was uh, until he was in high school a high school gym class and the gym teacher made him run and said you know by the way you're one of the fastest kids in the school and you could probably be one of the fastest kids in the county and running became the vehicle through which he understood that his body had this purpose and he it got injured a lot he uh, he was very prone to stress fractures in his shins um so in some ways he was born with you know an and the engine of a jaguar and uh you know the 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 the, the machinery of a of a vw bug or something like that but um you know, he came to run. That's how he came to running. Uh, a guy named Tom Lux, who was on this team, he was basically a juvenile delinquent until his brother made him run, and Bob Larson told him he could be special, and turns out he was. Uh, and you know, Kirk Pfeffer had a very terrible, really had a hard time relating to other kids and talking to people but you know as they interviewed him he talked about being eight years old and waking up early in the morning in san diego and going to for these runs around the block so he could smell uh you know the juniper and the eucalyptus and all the other stuff that's always blooming in san diego and the sense of peace it brought him Uh, you know these were not necessarily alpha males these were guys who were sort of had this gift, and uh, Larson was able to recognize it and cultivate it and turn them into a team that bonded together and really was able to achieve incredible success.
0: Right. Well, and ultimately, uh, success even on a nationwide scale and against very elite sort of opponents that most outside observers would assume they had no chance of of, of beating – just explain kind of the landscape uh, in in which they scored uh, some very very impressive success.
1: Well, when you talk about the national success, we're talking about the 1976 national cross country championships, right? Which at the time are really the, it's really sort of the biggest distance race in the country. Outside of the Boston Marathon, uh, in terms of people, and you know maybe the Olympic Trials Marathon, in terms of runners really sort of circling it on their calendar and running with their teams and trying to make names for themselves, and uh, you know Bob Larson always wanted to put a re- uh, sort of group of local San Diego runners that were running the way, uh, following his regimens and following his ideas and philosophies. He thought you know he thought his guys were pretty good and. The problem was nobody, had, for the most part, people hadn't really heard of them. They hadn't done anything internationally yet, and uh, they just they just weren't given much of a chance. The power, the supposed, the theory was that you know places like, for to the extent that there was running in the consciousness, it was happening in places like Boulder, Colorado, um, Eugene, Oregon. New York Athletic Club had some runners, obviously a much larger population pool to draw from, and yet there was this team from San Diego, and uh, you know what made them different is that they trained the right way, and they trained the way almost every elite runner trains today, and that was what Bob Larson figured out before anybody else did. That you know he figured out essentially how the Kenyans and Ethiopians train before the Ethiopians and the Kenyans figured out how they train and how they became the dominant long-distance running countries in the world and it really goes back to three principles it goes back to becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable you know, pushing yourself to that threshold uh... going on these long hard runs building up your volume and mixing in some speed work as well uh... it comes from understanding that you train as a group that even though this is an individual sport and kind of a solitary activity the power of the group is far stronger than the power of the individual. Uh, If if you're slacking off, it's great to have teammates there to make sure you don't slack off. And then finally, just having a certain belief, um, a belief that it does not matter where you're born or how you're born, uh, that, that 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 does not create your destiny. That if you train right and work hard and do the right things, you can be better tomorrow than you were yesterday, and you can eventually compete with the best
0: runners in the country and the world. Right, and it doesn't matter if your team has fancy matching uniforms and some kind of a nice endorsement deal. That does not matter in terms of how you will do on the track. Uh, eventually, of course, Bob Larson, because he scores such great success, moves up into the collegiate ranks and becomes a great legend. I think at UCLA, right? Yeah. Uh, and and moves into kind of the shorter distances. Uh, that's just kind of where the action is, and gives a little less focus to r- what always remains his first love, which is distance running. And during this time, uh, America's greatness at distance running goes into a precipitous decline and your book explains that a lot of that perhaps has to do with one alberto salazar who might be a familiar name to some of our listeners uh who who was a brilliant comet for a very short period of time and then his career just crashed and in a sense uh a lot of other runners sort of crashed inadvertently in the wake of of that. Uh, explain briefly that that connection between the fortunes of Alberto Zar- Salazar and then America's uh uh presence in long distance running.
1: Yeah, there is no question Salazar was the best marathoner in the world for a while. Um, you know, went, won everything, won New York, won Boston, and, you know, his crowning achievement was supposed to be the 84 Olympics. But beginning in 1983, he started to have some nagging injuries, and he just really lost his speed. Uh, at the Olympics, I think he ended up running about a 215, and, you know, much slower than he had run in, in, in New York previously and in Boston. And um, his career never really recovered. And people took a false lesson, took the false lesson from that, because no one trained harder than Alberto. Uh, You know, Alberto was an absolute madman when it came to training, running with 105 fever and all sorts of things, and nearly dying in the Falmouth Road Race uh, on a a humid day. So... um, Alberto was really kind of, a, kind of a seminal figure in American running. But then when he crashed, the, the, the idea that people took from that was, well, he just ran too hard, and he ran himself into a wall. And you know, we all are born with a certain number of steps and a certain number of you know, high-stress beats of the heart. And once you use those up, uh, they're done. And so, what people did is they kind of forgot the lessons that Bob Larson had been preaching in the 1970s uh, about running hard, about doing all the, uh, doing all those things we talked about previously, uh, you know, about training with a group and making sure, so, so you can make sure other people push yourselves and, and doing the volume, both volume and speed at the same time. And um, it didn't work. You know, there, the, the thing about running is there are no shortcuts. Uh, if you want to learn how to run far fast, you better practice running far fast um, you know for for lay runners like me you know if you want to if you want to finish a marathon you better you better run you know twenty twenty two twenty four miles before marathon day uh, it it 's all about the preparation and it 's all about the work and you know by the time the two thousand Olympics rolled around, we could only qualify one person uh, for the men 's marathon. And that was when Bob left UCLA and said, "You know what? I want to fix this thing. Um, we're, we're a huge country. Uh, we can be better than this. We just have to. We, we just honestly have to do what not only the Kenyans and Ethiopians are doing now in the Rift Valley in Africa, but what I was doing with my with my humble toads back in the 1970s." And that's what they did. Uh, They they created the Mammoth Track Club, which was a small running group, the first of its kind, really, in the U.S., and uh, there are six marathon medals given out at the Olympics, and that little group in Mammoth Lakes, California, ended up with two of them in 2004, one for Meb Kifleski and one for Dina caster
0: mm. Both of their stories are so uh, intriguing, and of course we can read about both of them uh, in, in your book. It, explain just a little bit of the science behind this notion of of doing training at high altitudes or, uh, or an in- interesting variation on that, which is the, the possibility of living at high altitudes but training at lower altitudes, but, but this whole idea of, of altitude mattering a lot for a distance runner.
1: Well, your body adjusts to altitude where there's less oxygen by creating more blood cells and more, more red blood cells, because the red blood cells ca- are in charge of carrying the oxygen to the rest of your body, to the muscles. So it adjusts in that way. And uh, so if you eat, just just by sleeping at high altitude, at 8,000 feet, you'll generate more red blood cells, and that will be greatly beneficial to you. Now, if you run and you put your body under a certain amount of strain, that's even better. Your body will create even more red blood cells uh, to try and compensate for the hard work. However, that puts a lot of strain on your body. So what a lot of times they did was they lived in Mammoth Lakes, uh, which, which is about 8,000 feet, but sometimes when they would train, they would go down to four or five thousand feet. So they're still running at altitude and working harder than they would at sea level because there's less oxygen there to breathe. It's just much harder. Um, but they weren't overstraining themselves by doing the really hard workouts at you know 8,000 feet, 9,000 feet. Which doesn't mean that sometimes they didn't run up to 9,000 feet. They did. Uh, those are, those are some, those are some tough days, but, uh, you know, it's, it's called live high, tra- live high, train low. And, uh, it's, it apparently creates a nice balance. I've never done it. I would love to do it sometime. I'd love to see uh, if I could get a little faster in my marathon.
0: <laughs> so what was it like for you to, uh, connect with some of these, runners that Bob Larson first worked with, I mean, most with names that none of us would recognize. Uh, And how surprised were they that anybody was interested in them and their part of Bob Larson's story?
1: They were pretty surprised that um, they could, I mean, they felt they had done something pretty special. Uh, They didn't really think the world was going to sort of they they thought it was sort of a little accident of history and um uh you know that they would that it would just be a nice story um and they would go from there but uh having said that uh you know we they, they when i reached out to them the whole they were the whole key to the book um so it was a matter of figuring out whether they as characters uh they they could carry the story in the way, as a writer, I felt they uh, needed to. And, you know, in calling them and reaching out to them, each one had really a um, better story than the next one. So uh, that was just a real relief once I reached out to them and heard that. You know, like I told you the story of Ed Mendoza before, Tom Walks. And, you know, the, 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 even, you know, them talking about their teammate, Terry Cotton, who would just run like a madman. And as I just, I guess the, the term I came up with, he would run as though he was, it was always, he only had one speed and he would run as though he was being chased uh, by a man with an axe. Um, that was sort of the way he would get after it. Uh, and, you know, people really talk about him in sort of these this legendary way because he was just so darn fast and just so talented.
0: And of course, you also got to connect with Meb Kefleski, uh, who won the silver medal at at uh, at the Athens uh, Olympics in the marathon. And you describe him as an incredibly emotionally generous person. And and most of these men with whom you spoke, uh, it sounds like they really opened up to you in a in an incredible way.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to get to know Meb over the years, and you know, the wonderful thing. About running is, and, and I, this is really unique to, um, to so many sports. Uh, I mean, no, unique to running as compared with so many other sports, is that the elite athletes in running. You know, they love to talk about running with lay runners. I could never talk about one of my Little League Baseball experiences with, uh, you know, Mike Trout or anyone like that. But Meb has no problem talking about my training with me and doing it in sort of a peer to peer way. Uh, As Abdi Abdi Rahman once said to me, you know, we all experience the pain of a marathon, we just experience it at different times. And I, it, it's a it's a it's a neat thing about the culture uh that um that running uh really engenders and it's one of the reasons i
0: uh love the sport so much well you certainly help us all uh, especially those of us who have no connection whatsoever with this sport or with this world understand it so much better and beyond of course understanding this brilliant man named Bob Larson and all that he did to transform the sport. The book again is Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed, Um, published by Doubleday, the author Matthew Futterman. Matthew Futterman, congratulations on a really great book and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it.
1: Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to be here.
0: I want to add that Matthew Futterman does a marvelous job of describing the science behind long-distance running and some of the intricacies and subtle touches of Bob Larson's training procedures. He also does a great job of describing the drama that was part of some of the most important races of Bob Larson's coaching career. For instance, he talks about the marathon race in the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, and makes an observation that I had never stopped to consider about the Olympic Marathon. He writes, an Olympic marathon is unique in the sport of long-distance running. In addition to the weight and history of the race, the competition brings a unique challenge. In all the other major marathons, runners return to the same streets each year. They become familiar with the nuances of each course. In New York, they know about the deceptive hills in those five bridges and that the real race doesn't begin until Central Park at the 24th mile. They know that Boston is flat and downhill for the better part of 16 miles, mostly uphill for five, then down again to the finish. They know about the damp chill of London, the almost eerie flatness of Chicago, the fast straight boulevards in Berlin, They come to them again and again and run them in their mind as they find similar terrain in training. In every summer games, the event on the Olympic marathon course is the first and likely the last time the race will take place on that exact route. An Olympic marathon course is once in a lifetime. There is no learning curve, no chance to acclimate yourself to its unique falls and rises, its prevailing weather, the sounds of its crowds, and the feeling of the pavement beneath your feet, the special approach to the Olympic Stadium. I want to finish by reading an excerpt from a chapter called Fall and Rise. Distance races and running itself rarely proceed according to plan. Just when the race appears to be won, When it seems like you have unlocked the secret truths, the unexpected happens. Intense heat or cold or miserable rain on the start line, tweaked ligaments, turned ankles, stress fractures, busted hips. In this way, running, running far, and trying to do it as quickly as possible may be most similar to life. Optimism may abound, but unexpected danger that rises with the most unsympathetic callousness is always lurking, always looking to knock back anyone who wants to tempt fate and believe too strongly that his running life is heading upward, ever upward. Turn a corner and there is a car that has drifted to the wrong side of the road. Visit a doctor for dizziness or headaches, and he begins to speak about a grave illness. These aren't inevitabilities, but they are possibilities, rising to whack us whether we expect it or not. We can think we are prepared to deal with them, but we can't be, just like we can't ever truly be prepared for the torn ACL, the incessant stabbing pain of high hamstring tendinitis. This is why running, and life too, the most important part of it anyway, always has to be about what we do next. In its most basic form, the running motion is a controlled forward burst that ends with a fall. Each step is a leap. Gravity brings us back to Earth, where our feet catch us and push us back up and forward again. Rise and fall and rise again. Do this roughly 40,000 times, and you will cross the finish line of a marathon. Success comes not by dwelling on the step that has just happened, or the subpar training session, or even the missed workout or the disappointing race, or the extra miles that led to the busted knee, or the nagging tightness in the oblique muscle that will not relent. Those miles, those training sessions, they are gone. Over. It can all begin again in some form if we want it to, though we have to figure out how to make it so. A new day, a new run, a new opportunity. There will be terrible races and glorious ones, miserable, injury-riddled years, and years of seeming invincibility. After the thrilling ascendance of youth, life and running become a series of episodes of ups and downs, falls and rises. Really, all that matters is what we do next. What's that you say? The past is never dead. It's not even past. Good writer, that William Faulkner probably not much of a runner. An excerpt from Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed, published by Doubleday, the author Matthew Futterman. I'm Gregory Berg.